0: 2020 election coverage on Utah Public Radio is supported by the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. And Southern Utah University, offering online programs that are designed to provide flexibility and affordability. Accelerate the path to professional achievement by choosing the online degree that's right for you. Information available at suu.edu/slash online.
1: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we'll preview the upcoming election with Morgan Lyon Cotty, Associate Director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics at the University of Utah. We're going to talk about the art and science of polling, vote by mail projected voter participation rates, and what's on your 2020 ballot, including several proposed constitutional amendments. Morgan Lyon-Cottie, as I mentioned, serves as the associate director of the Hinckley Institute, manages the local and legislative internships. She also contributes to Hinckley Institute's political analysis and research, and she is a former Hinckley intern who holds a Ph.D. in political science from George Washington University. Just at the beginning here, I'd like to... uh, I looked at your Twitter feed. Um, I I love this. Another installment of signs I see in my conservative suburb. (laughs) What What are you seeing?
2: I need to to be more careful about what I put on Twitter.
1: (laughs) That's right. I think we all kind of pay attention to this, right? Uh, To kind of see what our our neighbors are thinking and kind of kind of finger on the pulse. Not as scientific as polling, but it's kind of a way to see what's happening. Yeah.
2: So. Yeah, I live in a suburb just north of Salt Lake City, and it's consistently Republican. That said, it does elect pretty moderate individuals for the state legislature, especially for the House. Uh, But typically in the past, there haven't been too many, especially presidential Democratic signs. Um, But I have just been sort of stunned by the number of Biden signs. And it's interesting, there's still a lot of Republican legislative signs and non-partisan school board signs, but it's really common to see a street with several Biden signs and no Trump signs.
1: Interesting, and, and you say this is generally a conservative uh, suburb.
2: It's a conservative suburb. It's part of the 2nd Congressional District, and I'm really curious to see that precinct data after the election to see how different it really is. All those houses that don't have any signs, you know, are those the... People who normally don't put out a sign anyway are those that shy Trump voters. Um, Yeah, I'm just so curious to see if if this is an indication of what we're seeing in the polls, that a lot of, especially suburban women and college-educated suburban women, are moving farther and farther into the Democratic Party.
1: Now, we do hear, um, maybe have you talk about this a little bit, suburban vote, especially suburban women, uh, um, key demographic seems, at least nationally and in some state polls, to be moving away from Mr. Trump a little bit.
2: Yes, definitely. And we saw this starting, we really saw this evidenced in the 2018 election. Democrats did a really effective job of messaging to those suburbs. And people talk about the squad. They talk about AOC and those liberal um, new members of Congress. But it's really members... Um, actually, like Ben McAdams, that represent what that blue wave was. It was the moderate suburbs who really responded to those messages, primarily about health care, in 2018, that voted blue. Where in the past they'd been much more conservative.
1: Um, what are the what are the factors? Do you think the main factors driving the, this uh, prep shift? I guess health care is a, is a big that- one. Oh, sorry go on uh, no i was just uh, just mentioning healthcare what are some of the other factors
2: yeah i think this is a complicated complicated elections that we're seeing and we're seeing even shifts within the political parties um constituencies that used to be solidly republican or solidly democrat just aren't quite so solid anymore. And within the shift that we're seeing towards the Democratic Party with the suburban voters, they really responded, as we said, to that health care. There's also this element of people being turned off by uh, the really abrasive language. And speaking of Twitter tweets from the president, they don't like those messaging. So whereas Maybe with other parts of the Democratic Party that translates into anger and wanting to turn out because they're so frustrated um, with these more moderate voters there's still that frustration, but looking at certain elements of the Republican Party and it's just not sitting right with them, thinking that doesn't represent how I view immigration or how I, I view health care or these other types of issues
1: what uh, another demographic um, maybe slicing down a little you know more fine. Um you, you do see some signs, uh, some polls, which indicate that perhaps uh, there's some movement uh, among um, Latter-day Saint women, especially in, in some western states here.
2: Right, and I think that's part of the reason I have found these lawn signs so interesting, because, um, you know, Davis County is majority Latter-day Saint, and I think it's interesting to see so many signs in these neighborhoods. And it's interesting for women, and also why 2 analytics Um, a local Utah pollster in a poll they recently released showed that Biden was winning with women here in Utah by a pretty small margin, just four points. But that is significant, not just for Utah, but also for what it says about our neighbors. There are hundreds of thousands of Mormon voters in Nevada and Arizona. And Nevada is swinging further and further to be a little bit more of a safe, um, safe state for the presidency when it comes to democrats but arizona is considered a swing state and biden is winning there right now and a lot of people are chalking that up to very importantly the growing hispanic vote there but also those white mormon suburban women that are leaving the republican party
1: i want to to jump and talk a bit about polls um so you know, a lot of Democrats um, woke up disappointed after the election in 2016 because they they saw the polls. I'll be, you know, a narrow lead for uh, for Mrs. Clinton, but, but a lead none, nonetheless. And uh, then Mr. Trump won uh, some of those uh, Great Lakes states narrowly. Um, mm-hmm. c- can we generally trust the polls? I guess, you know, there are some outliers, but but if you go with polling averages, is is, is that generally going to be accurate?
2: Yeah, so a lot of people have started looking at companies like 538 or others that aggregate polls. And you can go to their website and they literally just aggregate all the polls and depending on the poll they get a certain grade and they go into their big model and they they tell you what these averages are and that can feel a little more uh, comforting to look at rather than just trying to figure out okay which which poll is right you know these are all a few points apart i don't quite know what to do Um, we do know that in 2016 a lot of polls just didn't get it right and hindsight um, shows that there were some pretty big mistakes. They were not taking into account um, some of those uh, Republican voters that maybe hadn't turned out or hadn't swung um, to a Democrat, been willing to swing to a Democrat in the past, and they didn't put that into their models. And also, they, you know, every poll they're trying to wait. You can't get this perfect uh, combination, try as you might, um, of voters. And one of the things they weren't weighting correctly was education. And so they were just looking at these white voters as a block and not realizing how different college educated versus less than college educated uh, white voters
1: chose. And so you can adjust for this, right? They've made some corrections?
2: Right. You, well, you can adjust for this at any time. You know, you, we at the Hinckley Institute poll with the Desert News and we'll get our results and we'll look at the demographics and realize we have too many Republicans in, in this one. Maybe we need to wait that a little more or maybe we have too much of this demographic. We need to make sure this re- this accurately represents the voting population in our state. And what pollsters in 2016 realized is that they hadn't they hadn't done that. Um, they hadn't been capturing that demographic. Um, and they also hadn't been capturing... One of the hard things is that you're trying to pull likely voters. And and that can be tricky, especially when you have a candidate like President Trump come in, and he really activated a base of the Republican Party that maybe hadn't been turning out for a while. And that caught a lot of pollsters um, on their heels. There have been a lot of adjustments made since then as they are trying to think more um, strategically about how they reach out to people they want to pull um, and making sure that they are really capturing that population of people who are likely to turn out to vote. And of course, this is all made more complicated by the fact that pollsters can't Use landlines anymore. They're trying to use this combination of cell phones and landlines and maybe online, and figure out how how can we use these technologies, um, whether it's that basic landline or you know an internet poll, to make sure that we are getting that accurate representation.
1: Is that going to be more of a problem moving forward? You know, uh, shifting. I guess, methods of how you reach voters to to actually poll them? And, and maybe some people just don't want to be bothered for anything.
2: Yeah, it's, all, it's always a challenge. It's always been a challenge for pollsters. And, you know, every time we see a new law or a new policy that makes it so it's easier for cell phone users to opt out of um, a robocall or opt-out of a sales call, that makes it harder for those pollsters. So they are constantly trying to adapt so that they can reach people.
1: Hmm. Uh, but do you think, uh, it's hard to predict the future, right? But uh, do you think pollsters will, will they hit a wall at some point or be, always be able to reach people? I guess maybe in a critical mass of people, enough people are interested in answering those questions.
2: Yeah, I think I think they they will find a way. I mean, this is this is a critical part of honestly the democracy for a lot of people. It's important for the news to know how or members of the media to know what uh, to know what their viewers and what their citizens are thinking and what they want to hear about, so that they can research those stories. And then, of course, that other big um, part of polling those candidates for elected office and those People who win that end up in elected office, they want to know what their constituents are thinking, um, and so I think they will always be looking to find a way so that they can identify those issues um, that people really care about.
1: I wonder uh, what you say about how do how do you look at a poll? Um, for, for example, you know we hear it polls a snapshot, right? Not predictive of the future. Right. But but it kind of some way that I think about it a little bit, and I don't know if this is correct, you know, you get enough of those snapshots, and it becomes kind of a moving picture, of course, at least up to today, right?
2: Right. Um, and that's exactly how people need to look at it. You know, we see an October poll, and, you know, a few weeks later, elections are going to look different. Well, they're going to look different because that poll is a snapshot in time, and because it was a snapshot of the population. As we said, try as they might, they try to get that accurate, that accurate picture of what the voting or what the electorate will look like. But we don't know exactly what turnout is and what the people who, you know, what the, that election year's electorate looks like until Election Day. And so um, it's sort of the difference between these uh, surveys, these demographic surveys the census does every single year, trying to keep up with what's going and what's changing in the country, and then that actual census they do every 10 years where they really are literally trying to count every person. So people have to view it that way. They're not these perfect pictures. They're not these perfect predictors. um, But they are interesting snapshots that you should look at. Um, and look at with that critical eye.
1: How to tell if a, a pollster, a company, is uh, you know has a good track record or not? I know Five Thirty Eight rates the polls. Is that a good place to go?
2: Right. Yeah, Five Thirty Eight rates the polls, and they rate they rate them um, oftentimes based on uh, partisanship. Some of these. Public polling companies will also poll for candidates, and 538 makes sure they track those and know whether they have a Republican or a Democratic leaning, um, and that's really good. You know, one thing that I often think about when I talk about polling is, The um, late, great Dan Jones, who was a professor here at the University of Utah and who polled in Utah for decades, always talked about how polling is not just a science, it is an art. And you want a pollster who knows your state well, who can have that gut check to know whether or not those numbers are right. And Dan could tell many stories about how he would refuse to give a candidate numbers Um, because he would say, this just doesn't feel right. I've got to pull another night or two to make sure I'm getting these right numbers. There's other things that just if you're looking in the newspaper and you're seeing a poll that can be helpful. If, you know, most good polls, they're polling for a few days. They're polling over like a four or five-day period to make sure that there's not like some big moment that really disrupts a poll that's captured in just one night. So if you see a poll that's just like for one day, that's usually not a great sign, and if you're seeing a poll where they were calling people for like two or three weeks, that's usually not a good sign either. So there's little tricks of the trade you can use when you're trying to read
1: those for yourself. You mentioned Dan Jones, and I I, I noticed I uh, read that you'd uh, done a what a history a biography of Dan Jones.
2: I did. It's it's still a little bit of a work in progress. But Dan was a professor of mine when I did my undergraduate here at the Hinkley Institute, and then I was or at the University of Utah, and then I was lucky enough to be able to work with him on a few things. Um, and when I, when I you know started working later on and uh, when I started at the Hinckley Institute, one of my first projects was I was told to write a bio on Dan Jones. And at first I, I thought, well, are we introducing him somewhere? Where do you need a paragraph? And they said, no, we, we want a political history slash biography of Dan over the last six decades. So it's been a big work in progress. Luckily, I was able to interview Dan at least a dozen or so times before he passed away um, and lots of other great uh, leaders of our state who had lots of interesting tales from the campaign trail.
0: <laughs>
1: we'll, we'll look for that. Uh, Dan Jones, of course, synonymous with polling. And, you know, you, you, you link the two. Polling in Utah, Dan Jones, right? Um, right. I, I was interested with, with, with what, that anecdote you told uh, about Dan Jones. It's, it's Polling is a science, right? But it's also, there's an art to it. And I, I guess, you know, uh, a pollster with long experience, there's gut instinct.
2: There is a lot of gut instinct, and it's so critical to understand the quantitative elements, but also the qualitative, to know how to frame the questions correctly, um, to know how to administer the poll correctly. Um, Even the ordering of questions can really affect a poll. I mean, if if we were to write a poll and the first five questions were all about COVID-19 and the economy and a school closure, and then we asked, do you approve or disapprove of this you know, specific elected official, that person's mind is framed to be upset and to be negative, and that can affect that next question. So you have to think through those things. Um, and Dan's wonderful wife, former Senator Pat Jones, was really the powerhouse on the qualitative stuff for Dan Jones and associates and knew how to do those focus groups and have those one-on-one conversations and really draw out those deeper opinions that people held.
1: That's interesting. Of course, focus group is another you know method, um, and then I guess interaction between the two one can inform the other.
2: Absolutely, and you know, oftentimes, especially when candidates are running or they're thinking about what issue to focus on or what they want to run campaigns or excuse me advertisements on, that's when they really drill down to those focus groups and they try to try to hear from their constituents about how are they really feeling about their healthcare options. How is it, how is the economic downturn truly affecting them? How is COVID-19 impacting their community? And, you know, what you necessarily can't do in this like broad 20 question poll that has to cover, you know, 14 topics, you can really do in that focus group and drill down and allow people to feed off each, off of each other and really the, hear the emotion in their voices and see it in their faces as they're discussing these issues.
1: Uh, we heard about a potential shy Trump voter, right? Um, the last time, when it worries, at least from the Democrats' side, uh, 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 this time around. are What's the probability, do you think, we have shy Trump voters or shy Biden voters, uh, voters who are not telling their real opinion to the pollster?
2: Uh, It's always so tricky, and it honestly depends on how the poll is conducted as well. Um, People really talked about those shy Trump voters with polls that were conducted on the phone. People didn't want to admit that in person. And we've seen a lot of um, pollsters actually move a little more online hoping that perhaps that can get rid of that idea of the shy Trump voter. People are going to be less likely to um, be shy about admitting it when it just feels like it's this very anonymous survey you are filling out online. But that said, this is something that people are really watching for this time. They're not sure whether we will still see this shy Trump voter. Um, We've certainly seen... um, People are more willing to be forthright about whether or not they are favoring him. Um, There's certainly I mean, I've talked about when I was talking about my neighborhood, there's a lot more Biden signs than I would expect. But there's also more Trump signs than I saw in 2016. Uh, There are those who support him really like what he's done with the economy and with some of his other policies. And they are more willing to tell their neighbors about it.
1: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're doing an election preview with Morgan Lyon Cotty, Associate Director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics at the University of Utah. As you've heard, we've been talking about polling. We'll be talking about vote by mail, projected voter participation rates, uh, what's on your 2020 ballot, including several proposed constitutional amendments, and more. Uh, and later in the program, we'll uh, reach back in the archives to 2016, the previous presidential uh, election year, and a conversation with Ron Chernow, author of a biography of Hamilton, and uh, which was the inspiration for the musical uh, Hamilton. All of that uh, still to come. More following this break.
0: 2020 election coverage on Utah Public Radio is made possible by Southern Utah University, offering online programs that are designed to provide flexibility and affordability. Accelerate the path to professional achievement by choosing the online degree that's right for you. Information available at suu.edu slash online. Support also comes from the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. The first debate was chaos. The
1: The second one was canceled after the president tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, former Vice President Biden and President Trump face off one last time before election night. I'm Ari Shapiro. Join us Thursday night for NPR's special live coverage of the presidential debate from NPR News. Thursday night at 7 here on Utah Public Radio. Composer Jimmy Lopez was working on a piece when his father unexpectedly died. Suddenly, the music had deeper meaning for Lopez. He said it came to represent his father's transcendental journey. A piece called Guardian of the Horizon by Jimmy Lopez on the next performance today from APM.
0: Tonight at 9 o'clock on Utah Public Radio.
1: This Is Her Place is a new podcast that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present. Cash Arts and UPR are presenting an evening with the podcast team this Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. in the Allen Echoes Theater in Logan. I'll lead a conversation on stage and we'll hear audio clips and tell fascinating stories. The audience will be limited in number, and the event will be socially distanced. Masks will be required, and temperatures will be taken to the door, so we'll make this as safe as possible. Help you join us. Tickets available at CashArts.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're uh, previewing the upcoming election with Morgan Lyon-Cotty, Associate Director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics at uh, the University of uh, Utah. I wonder about participation. Um, the, the, the theory is, it looks like there's a lot of energy on all sides uh, that, that we might set records in the nation. And I don't know about Utah as well for voter participation this time around.
2: Yeah, if the, these early poll number or these early polling numbers, you know, that we're seen at the polling stations are any indication this should be a historic year. Um, As of October 19th, we'd already had tens of millions of people vote nationwide, far, far, far surpassing the numbers from 2016. And, you know, upon reflection, they realized that because... we saw lower early numbers in 2016 because people weren't making up their minds, which it turned out was a very bad sign for the Clinton campaign. Uh, This year, people are really motivated. They were really motivated in 2018. It seems like the democratic party is continuing with that motivation and that, and the Republican party is also still trying to activate their base. Um, We have seen recent news reports that they are doing a pretty effective job of uh, registering new voters in North Carolina and in Pennsylvania, which are two pretty crucial states this election. Uh, and so we're waiting to see. You know, obviously, it looks like those early numbers are favoring Democrats, but we won't know what the Republican turnout is until Election Day.
1: So this is going to be uh, pretty interesting. Uh, that is, there's kind of been a trend, I think, right, um, the, the so-called blue shift or, or- you know, the thoughts that there there would really be a, a so-called blue shift this time around. In other words, a lot of Democrats voting early and uh, Republicans all coming in, out on Election uh, Day. Um, so some states allow the, the, the you know election counters to start counting those mail-in ballots earlier, and some are more restrictive. I guess it's just going to be state by state.
2: Yeah, that's one of the interesting things about American elections is that they are run by States, and even more so, they are really run by county clerks or precinct chairs. And the rules are so different um, depending on where you are. Uh, and this is something that people need to be really aware of on election night when they're watching those returns. I've heard it called um, the red mirage, especially ah. in some of these states where uh, they weren't allowed to count early on. And those numbers that we're going to see election night are just going to be from those election day votes primarily and then those numbers from vote by mail will be added in later on. So here in Utah, uh, they can count, um, but obviously they can't release anything until election night. So we feel like we will have we often have a pretty accurate view. But here in Utah, you know we're used to ha- to having to wait. Um, in 2018, we had to wait um, almost until the final canvas day, which is two weeks after the election, to know who won uh, that fourth district. And uh, the same thing happened in our Republican primary. That very very close race between Cox and Huntsman.
1: Yeah, that was at least a week, was it? Is it verging on two weeks before we knew? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so it uh, looks like we we have another close election for the 4th uh, District. The latest poll I saw was, was a pretty much a dead heat.
2: Yeah. Yeah, this is always just a close race. that has been ever since... Um, we had redistricting in 2010 and even before then. Uh, Matheson usually had very close races. Uh, This is just a tight area. And it's interesting because it's, there's a long history. This is also part of this district is also where uh, Bill Orton represented and he had close races as well. So it's, um, it's what we used to call the Diet Coke Mormons. It doesn't, it doesn't, hold as well now that um, there's fewer caffeine restrictions but it's that idea that it's these republican mormons who are willing to check that box for a democrat and we see that matheson was able to thread that needle mcadams has been able to we'll see if he's able to do it again this election
1: um i want to talk a little about vote by mail i i saw an interview this was a month or so ago Uh, A national outlet talking to Lieutenant Governor Cox, of course, heads up the elections in Utah. Um, And I I think they wanted to find a a Republican state that had experience with vote by mail, right? And uh, and, and so what he said was, uh, yes, if you have some experience with it, you've worked out the kinks, great, it works great. Uh, He had some worries about some states who were trying to implement this uh, on the fly uh, during this year.
2: Yeah, in Utah, we're really lucky that we have been doing vote by mail for several years. And, you know, vote by mail started in part out of necessity. It was in some of our more rural areas who, uh, where voting was really costly. You lived far away from where you could vote on Election Day or even with early voting. And so some of the counties started this, and we thought others follow suit. And as you said, we've been able to do this and develop it and add more counties as the years went by. So uh, that now when it's a necessity, it was not that big of a task to do it. Um, I shouldn't I shouldn't downplay what the clerks and what his office have done. It's been truly amazing how well it's gone this year. Um, but uh, to his point, there are some really large states with really dense urban areas who are trying to do this on a large scale for the first time. And some of those mistakes, some of those hiccups are going to happen during a really crucial year and uh, also during a year where we're not giving a lot of um benefit of the doubt, I guess I'll say to people, worrying that everything is a conspiracy or everything is intentional. Um, so it's a really tricky year to try to do this.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I guess we'll see, right? It's uh, But it's kind of interesting. The, the vote by mail seems to, you know, in, until now, on a larger scale, been a Western phenomenon, Western states.
2: It has. Yeah, it has. And again, that sort of goes back to geography. Um, and I think it was one of Spencer Cox's um, team members, Justin Lee, and I've actually texted him to confirm, and I'm fairly certain it was him that said this, um, but that in southern Utah, we had, for the whole country, the farthest distance of a, of a voter to a polling location, um, because in really rural areas, it's you know, your driving distance to that county clerk's office or to that local elementary school where you get to go and cast your ballot—that's far. And we see that also in really rural areas throughout the West. So it was um, these states that were really innovative and really got the ball rolling um, for their for their voters.
1: Uh, and I, you know, I, I've come to like it. I, I kind of miss going to the, you know, to the and seeing my neighbors at the polling station, but it's it's very yeah. convenient.
2: I missed the sticker. yeah and the sticker, the Yes. the governor's office is trying to have this whole campaign about how you can make your own cookie sticker or whatever, but <laughs> let it be known. I want my sticker.
1: Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> Let's get our sticker. Um, because, you know, they're, they're, it goes to a pride, and, in, in, you know, I took place in this important civic ritual, right?
2: Right. And, I mean, there is some research and literature about this, that part of the reason you vote is... I mean, there's more to it than just thinking you're casting the deciding ballot. Uh, there is, or doing it because you think you'll, you know, your candidate will give you some economic benefit or something like that. There is this intrinsic value that people um, feel like they are fulfilling their duty as a citizen. And even there's been um, campaigns that, are, that try to tie into that sort of duty, that positive idea. This is why you should vote as a citizen of the United States. And those can be really effective. Those things matter. And people like that feeling of knowing that they played their part for their community, for their state, for their country.
1: Uh, the, the president uh, is expressing, has been expressing concerns that uh, vote by mail uh, would increase the chances for voter fraud. Is is there research uh, about uh, mail-in voting?
2: There There is lots of research about voter fraud and about mail-in voting. And at the end of the day, the instances of voter fraud are very, very minuscule. And Uh, Actually, going back to the lieutenant governor's office, if you listen to interviews with them, it's often um, people who are committing voter fraud are doing it, they think, for rather innocent reasons. It's people whose spouse was out of town um, and they hadn't filled it out yet, and so they signed their name. Or it's people who forgot they mailed it in and then went to vote. Or it's people with a missionary who think, I will fill this out for my LDS missionary, And I know how they want to vote. So it's never quite as um, dark or um, seedy as people think. All of those instances are still obviously voter fraud, but they're pretty easy to identify, especially because they're scanning those signatures and making sure they match with records. Um, And, I mean, it should also be said that there is a lot of research out there that shows vote-by-mail doesn't favor one party or another. You know, historically, when it was just members of the military or perhaps older people, we saw that those absentee ballots, really favored Republicans because it was those different demographics. But as vote by mail has become more popular and widely used, it's been a pretty nonpartisan thing and really hasn't given one given one party an edge over the other.
1: so this really does happen. A parent of a missionary will fill out a ballot because they, yeah, I guess it's innocent yet if if you it's, if you know how your missionary would vote.
2: it, it does. There are instances of it. Um, you can reach out for the to the lieutenant governor's office or uh, look up some of those fun stories, funny stories about that. Um, but it it does happen. I think it's very rare, but it does happen.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, of course, the uh, we had a big deal uh, just a week or two ago. The uh, vice presidential debate uh, came to University of Utah. Um, and uh, uh, well, first of all, how how was that? I think the Hinckley Institute was. Were, were you involved there?
2: We were, we were very involved. We um, were a central part of the bidding process. And then of course, with the planning process as well, everything from making sure all of the logistics were happening the way they needed to, to engaging our students, and our community members with the debate. And it was a fantastic experience. It was fun to watch people leaving from Kingsbury Hall. It seemed all of those local officials that were there to support Vice President Pence were happy. All those people that were there to support Senator Harris were happy. Um, And from my perspective, it was just such an incredible example of um, just bragging about my school, how amazing the University of Utah is. From the hospital helping with testing and ARUP to uh, the Hinckley Institute of Politics to our building and our maintenance and our arts community, everyone played a part of this. And it was just a really great, successful event.
1: How much of an effect uh, does the average vice president of presidential debate uh, have, do you think? We, we, they're big moments, right? But uh, on average, does this have an effect on, on voters?
2: Yeah, so vice presidential debates typically do not have the biggest impact on elections. I think in cases, there are extraordinary cases where people watch them more. And the most watched uh, ones actually have been some of these historic ones. They, the most watched vice presidential debate actually was in 2008 with Sarah Palin and Joe Biden. And the first time that the Republican Party had nominated a woman to be their number two on their ticket. Um, this last debate with Harris and Pence was the second most watched. And I think people were watching that because we'd recently heard about uh, the diagnosis of President Trump with COVID-19. There's been a lot of talk about the ages of both candidates of Biden and Trump. Um, And also Kamala Harris is her own historic figure being the first um, Asian Asian American woman and also black woman to be uh, vice president. And I have to say the third most watched was Geraldine Ferraro's debate in 1984. So clearly people want to hear from these ladies, and I think that's pretty amazing. Um, But really, long story short, the answer is debates can move polls, but they don't necessarily have a huge impact, or we haven't proved that they have a huge impact on the final results of an election. Mm. So they might have a short-term bump or dip in a poll, but it usually doesn't last too long. There's usually the next news cycle counteracts whatever the debate did.
1: Um, We're we'd, uh, running out of time here, but I want to uh, talk about uh, the, uh, of course, the presidential race gets gets a lot of uh, press. Congressional races, but we have a bunch of constitutional amendments on the ballot this this year. Um, we
2: do. And these can be really um, confusing for voters. There's so many. It's hard. It's sort of system or it's sort of information overload. Luckily, with the vote by mail, people can sit down at their computer and do the research on these. Um, But a lot of times, especially for these sort of lower ballot um, issues, People go online or they look to see what endorsements there might be, but there's not much campaigning for really any of these constitutional amendments. Um, So voters are really going to have to read through these and just sort of have that gut check and do that research to figure out how they feel about things.
1: And, you know, vote.utah.gov, uh, you can go and see arguments pro and con and, and read up all about the, the amendments. As you say, uh, you know, you can sit at your kitchen table with the vote by mail. Uh, it's, it's everything from changing every time it says man to person, right? To the, you know, mm-hmm. in, important but, uh, but, but smaller. Uh, the date of when the legislative session begins. Uh, I think the one that's getting the press is removing the references to slavery from the Constitution.
2: Yeah, you're right. There is a big range. Everything from, as you said, making the Constitution gender neutral, uh, giving the legislature a little more leeway and, and the legislature starts. Um, but as you said, Utah Constitution actually mentions slavery and there is a constitutional amendment to get rid of that. And, you know, you could look at that and say, oh, that's very outdated, you know. Please don't forget, though, that our state constitution was passed 30 years after the end of the Civil War. Um, But I think this will also ignite some conversations about criminal justice and the work that goes on within um, the prison system within the United States. And that will be really interesting. Another one people are looking at is Amendment G, which would allow... um, income or excuse me revenue from the income tax to also be used for programs to help um, disabled both youth and adult programs and right now that personal income tax revenue is devoted just to schools.
1: The one of them has to do with uh, enshrining a personal individual right to, to hunting and fishing. Jeez.
2: Yeah that one's interesting putting that within the constitution and also saying that those should be the preferred methods to um, control game populations. So it's it's really interesting. And I mean, you can Google this. You can, there's a few nonprofits and a few other people um, that have given their endorsements. But one of the interesting things about this is that for most of these constitutional amendments, these nonprofits and these advocacy groups, some of which are partisan, it says neutral, 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 neutral. So a lot of these are things that the groups or other entities worked out with the legislature um, before the legislature passed this. Um, but that's also another tricky thing for voters to consider: is that the legislature passes this language before it is a, before it goes on the ballot. So you sort of have to think through that of what was the intention of those legislators? What are, what are the policy impacts that approving this um, could have?
1: Finally, um, what's the probability we'll know who the president is on the, the evening of November for 4- third?
2: Oh man, I. I would give it a, I don't know. I don't know if people are going to be willing to call it. I think we'll have a pretty clear indication of where it's headed, but I think people are going to be, the major networks especially, are going to be very shy about calling anything, just knowing there may be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of uncounted ballots in some of these really crucial swing states.
1: Well, well, we'll certainly be tuned in. Um and I'm, yeah. I'm sure you will be as well. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking some time with us.
2: Happy to join you.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. And uh, that's a conversation with uh, Morgan Lyon-Cotty, who's Associate Director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics at the University of Utah. Thanks to her. Uh, coming up, uh, following a break, we're going to reach back into the archives. We'll go back to the uh, most recent presidential election year, 2016, That's when we talked with Ron Chernow, author of the famous biography of uh, Alexander Hamilton, made even more famous by uh, the fact that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda turned it into a hip-hop musical, which uh, swept the world. Um, And uh, we're going to talk with Ron Chernow um, about the musical and and about Hamilton, the man. That's uh, following this break. The Utah Debate Commission has organized debates for candidates in all of Utah's congressional districts, as well as for candidates for governor and attorney general, and UPR has been broadcasting all of these. The last debate from the Utah Debate Commission for this year features candidates for Utah attorney general. The Democratic candidate, Greg Scortis, will challenge the Republican incumbent, Sean Reyes. Join us Wednesday evening at 6 here on Utah Public Radio on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. We salute a city with a vibrant world music scene, New York. Musicians from Africa, South
3: America, the Caribbean, and beyond all enrich the city's musical tapestry.
1: I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Music in New York,
2: the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
1: Hey, it's Frances Lamb. Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger pioneered food TV, have successful restaurants, and started out as two young women in LA cooking food from around the world when all their peers were macho French chefs. They were the 2018 winners of the Julia Child Award, and we get their story. It's coming up on The Splendid Table.
0: Sundays at noon on Utah Public Radio.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We'll uh, keep it politics-themed here. We'll reach back in the archives uh, to 2016 when we had occasion to speak with Ron Chernow, uh, author of uh, several uh, biographies, including uh, biographies of uh, George Washington, uh, John D. Rockefeller. Uh, The biography we talk about in this conversation is one of Alexander Hamilton, and more, made more even more famous by the fact that Lin-Manuel Miranda approached Ron Chernow for rights uh, to the biography, and uh, in fact, to turn this story into a hip-hop a musical. Uh, so here's a portion of my conversation from 2016 with Ron Chernow. There's a lot of attention on Alexander Hamilton at this point. Um, what do you think that says? What, wh- why is Alexander Hamilton having his moment right now?
2: Well,
3: you know, I think when I started writing my biography of Alexander Hamilton in 1998, one of the reasons I did so was that he was fading into obscurity. It seems comical now because his name is up on the marquee of a, a Broadway musical. But Hamilton was regarded as a kind of a second string founding father, um, whereas I thought that he... His achievements were really monumental and deserved to be put up right up there with George Washington, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, uh, James Madison, and so I think that not only the book but the show is part of an ongoing uh, reevaluation of the period. And Hamilton's stock just keeps rising higher and higher.
1: I want to jump into Hamilton's life, but first of all, the musical—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a big hit. Um, do you think the musical's creators got it right? Did they faithfully represent uh, Hamilton's life and ideas?
3: Absolutely. You know, usually when either Hollywood or Broadway does American uh, history, uh, that they um, start out with the assumption that they have to simplify it in some form, that it's really boring. And I think the wonderful thing about uh, working with Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, was that he had real integrity, and he realized that... Um, This is a life that is so dramatic and so improbable. There's no way that you can improve on it. You just have to capture it. And I think that he did it brilliantly. And uh, he really worked very, very faithfully uh, from from the book. So I'm kind of touched and thrilled and, frankly, slightly amazed that my book has triggered off this national and international phenomenon called Hamilton.
1: What did, what did you think when uh, they first came and pitched this uh, to you? Or, or well,
3: the first time that about. I met Alain, um, he was still starring in his first Broadway show, which was called uh, In the Heights. He told me that he had read my biography on vacation in Mexico, and he said as he was reading the book, uh, hip-hop songs started rising off the page, and I could remember saying to him, really? You know, this was not a typical reaction to uh, t- to my book. And then he started telling me that he wanted to do either um, hip-hop concept album or a hip-hop um, musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton. And I think that Lynn immediately realized that he was speaking to a world-class ignoramus about hip-hop. <laughs> so I said to him, can hip-hop be the vehicle for telling this kind of very rich and complex story? And he said, Ron, I'm going to educate you about hip-hop and on the spot he started explaining to me why hip-hop was the perfect vehicle he started pointing out things like because the lyrics are very dense and rapid you can pack an enormous amount of information into the lyrics. Um, uh, the lyrics have not only rhymed endings, but internal rhyme and wordplay, and lots and lots of things. You know, I didn't initially, Tom, see what an inspiration it was in terms of matching up Hamilton with uh, hip-hop. But the way that he's portrayed in the show is as a very um, intense, driven, almost frenetic character. And that personality matches up perfectly with this, these very dense, rapid, uh, lyrics. So as we kept working together, because we worked together for about six or seven years, I saw what a marvelous inspiration the whole thing was.
1: One thing comes through very clearly in your book that that white-hot ambition, and that, that he's not alone, of course, in in this, but it, he definitely was was very, very ambitious, and and he achieved He achieved a lot.
3: Yeah, I mean, his achievements are extraordinary because there were um, you know three major acts of the founding drama in our country the first was the Revolutionary War and during the Revolutionary War he becomes aide-de-camp to George Washington and chief of staff he then is a battlefield you know hero at Yorktown you know the second act of the drama the Constitu Constitutional Convention it's Hamilton who personally issues the call for a constitutional convention in Philadelphia in May 1787 he attends he's the sole New York delegate to sign it then afterwards He oversees the Federalist Papers, 85 essays um, uh, that were published anonymously to um, get people to ratify uh, the Constitution. Hamilton wrote 51 of the 85 essays in six months. And then the third act of the drama was creating the federal government, where Hamilton becomes the first Treasury Secretary at age 34 not only created the Treasury Department, uh, created the uh, Coast Guard. He uh, created the first Customs Service. He created the first central bank, the forerunner of the Federal Reserve System, first fiscal system, first monetary system, first tax system, first accounting system, on, on, on. He really was the architect of the uh, federal government. That's what I was saying earlier, Tom. These are really monumental achievements. And to my mind, you know, he should be up there uh, on the pedestal with the other main founding fathers.
1: Why do you think uh, Hamilton resonates so much, especially through his vehicle of the, of, of the musical? Why, why do you think he resonates so, so much?
3: Well, you know, I think that uh, partly um, he comes, as I was saying before, he comes to North America. He doesn't know a uh, soul. So he's, the, he's a quintessential immigrant. He's really the most influential immigrant uh, in our history. And I think that very importantly for people, and I see this really resonates with young people, he was a self-invented figure. You know, he was an extraordinarily smart and talented man, you know, and he thought that he could do anything, and and he seemed to in many ways. And, you know, when we were working on the show, I knew that people would be walking out of the theater with a lot of the political, you know, parallels that we were just, uh, and political differences that we were just talking about. What I had not foreseen uh, with with, uh, the musical, and I should have, is that a lot of people, particularly young people, are walking out of the theater thinking to themselves, what am I doing with my life? How am I using my time? What is my legacy? And that the show and Hamilton's life have this powerful, you know, personal meaning for people, which I think is absolutely uh, fantastic. You know, it doesn't get any better than this for a biographer. It doesn't get any better than this for a Broadway show.
1: Finally, what, is, uh, what does Hamilton mean, do you think? Uh, there's, he's meant a l- lot of different things over the years. What, 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 phrase it this way, what do you hope he means at this point?
3: Well, you know, um, very often people will say to me, what would the founders have thought about this? And I say, well, the founders um, didn't give us uh, a set of answers. They gave us a set of questions because they were arguing about the same conflicts we had today. Um, Hamilton was in favor of a strong central government. Um, Jefferson was in favor of states' rights. Hamilton was in favor of a very expansive interpretation of the Constitution. Jefferson was in favor of strict construction. Hamilton was in favor of executive power. Jefferson was in favor of legislative uh, power. And so I think that Hamilton has many different um, meanings, and I think that we're still debating the same issues in this election year that they were debating back in the 1780s and 1790s. It's quite amazing, the continuity Mm -hmm. of American politics. And it's, you know, an argument without an end. We'll still be fighting about this stuff 50 or 100 years from now. For instance, federal power and states' rights is right at the center of the the Civil War. But the system, you know, reaches a point uh, where those um, uh, tensions can no longer be handled within the framework of the constitutional system. I hope to God, you know, we never reach that point again in the country. And of course, you know, we're seeing in the presidential race, the Democrats are veering off towards left, you know, and the Republicans are veering off towards the, in the right, you know, and one has to hope that our constitutional system is strong enough uh, to contain all of these different contending forces that have become very, very powerful in this election year. I think it will. I mean, again, you know, the founders um, after the convention in Philadelphia, uh, Hamilton, Washington, Franklin, you know, they thought the Constitution might last 20 years. I think if they came back, nothing would amaze them more than how uh, durable the U.S. Constitution has been.
1: And the election year Ron Turnow was referring to there it was 2016. That's when we talked with the author of uh, the well received biography, Alexander Hamilton, of course, the basis for the uh, uh, world famous uh, hip hop uh, musical by Lin Manuel Miranda. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have another election preview uh, for you. This time, McKay Coppins, writer with The Atlantic. Uh, He, last week, was uh, a headliner for an event, a virtual event, uh, presented by the Institute of Government and Politics at USU and the Utah State University Journalism and Communication Department, uh, titled The 2020 Disinformation War, How Propaganda, Conspiracy Theories, and Fake News Are Shaping the Presidential Election and What to Do About It. And uh, McKay Coppins will join us to talk about these themes and uh, many other matters. Hope you join us. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today.
0: 2020 election coverage on Utah Public Radio is supported by the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University. Working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources and events. Information is available at utwomen.org. And election coverage is also supported by Southern Utah University, offering online programs that are designed to provide flexibility and affordability. Accelerate the path to professional achievement by choosing the online degree that's right for you. Information available at suu.edu online.